Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream which no one can interpret, but I have heard it said that you know how to interpret a dream. I dreamed I was standing on the bank of the Nile. I saw seven ears of grain, full and fine, growing on a single stalk. After them sprouted seven withered, thin ears, blasted by the east wind. Joseph then said to Pharaoh, The seven empty ears blasted by the east wind are seven years. There will be seven years of famine. Verses from Genesis chapter 41. Did a global drought bring an end to the Old Kingdom of Egypt? Archaeologists examining and dating the soil layers from multiple sites around the world have noted similarities in ancient climate change during a specific time range. Sometime around the year 2200 BC, in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in India, and other locations around the globe, the same thing seems to happen. Previously good soil, thick loam for the raising of crops in all these areas, is covered under a layer of dry sand or dust. Discovered at one site, such evidence simply indicates that the region experienced a drought. Working individually, archaeologists at different digs knew that they had discovered another factor in the local decline of the culture whose ruins they were excavating. After compiling data from different archaeological sites, though, researchers realized that there was a surprising similarity between all these discoveries. These ancient droughts had occurred all at roughly the same time, beginning in 2200 BC and reoccurring frequently for roughly three centuries after that. Suddenly, the global picture came together. What had been somewhat mysterious before in each civilization now made sense. In the Near East, the decline of both the Egyptian and the Mesopotamian civilizations, the descents into anarchy, and the dearth of record-keeping in both places and in other regions around the world, such as the Indus Valley in India, all had come about sometime during the century after 2200 BC. In Egypt, the seemingly invulnerable Old Kingdom declines beginning that year, and there follows over a century of historical darkness and confusion, and a lack of notable artistic or architectural achievement. And the Akkadian Empire, so painstakingly put together by Sargon the Great and left to his descendants, fell apart completely 50 years later, and a great power did not resume control of Mesopotamia until the Babylonians rose to power 300 years later. The theory has its detractors, but it is intriguing. Of course, drought, even severe drought, is unlikely to be the sole reason for societal decline in any area, but it certainly would have been a significant added stress to political and economic systems already held together precariously by men who needed to claim divinity in order to keep their subjects in line, even in good times. Whatever the explanation, we know that the Old Kingdom of Egypt came to an end roughly around the year 2180 BC, with the end of the Sixth Dynasty. Four dynasties, the third through the sixth, had ruled a stable kingdom for five centuries. There would follow the first of what Egyptologists call an intermediate period, a period of dynastic confusion, of multiple power centers in Egypt, and of near ignorance in the present time about historical events in that land. Sometime around 2040 BC, the kingdom would be united again and emerge from the Dark Age that preceded. 
We call this time of renewed vigor the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. It would last for nearly four centuries before it too fell, most likely due to an altogether different kind of societal stress. And a second intermediate period would follow the Middle Kingdom, a period of waiting for a new line of pharaohs, a new kingdom. of factors were probably involved in the end of the Egyptian Old Kingdom. I mentioned just now the role that drought most likely played in putting stress on this ancient civilization. Other stress factors probably included the growing power of the nomarchs. We already heard in prior podcasts how these men and their families had once controlled their various city-states almost autonomously in the early dynastic period. One mark of the beginning of the Old Kingdom is the waning power of these nomarchs and the growing political and religious strength of the pharaohs. But history runs in circles, and what defined the period before the Old Kingdom defined its ending. After five centuries of unprecedented strength and stability, the Kingdom of Egypt had finally begun to succumb to internal pressures. The nomarchs had slowly resumed at least a fraction of their former influence. Through marriage into the royal family and through the acquisition of high government posts, such as that of the vizier, who acted as the king's prime minister, various families of nomarchs had acquired influence and power far beyond that which they had known for centuries. The long reign of Pepi II, one of the last pharaohs of the Sixth Dynasty, probably also contributed to the end of this glorious era. It might sound counterintuitive to say that because long reigns are known for their stability, However, the long reign of a king can also confuse the issue, the issue of succession. Now, before we go any further, I should note that I will try to avoid naming a lot of pharaohs, as their names and indeed many of their doings even are really irrelevant to our purposes. However, in covering several hundred years of history, I will naturally name several pharaohs, but I am not going to bother spelling out their names. I'm just going to pronounce them as best I can and hope that is good enough for you. Furthermore, I should remind everyone that I often use the word pharaoh to describe the king of Egypt, but as I related in an earlier podcast, we do not know of that term being used for the king until much later, sometime in the 13th century BC. Still, I will use it interchangeably with king, monarch, and ruler just for a variety of language, and as it especially makes it easier to hear that I am speaking about an Egyptian king and not a Babylonian, Hittite, or some other king. Now, back to Pepi II. Pepi II is reputed to have ruled 90 years, assuming the throne at age 6 under the guardianship of his mother and her brother, who had been vizier for Pepi's father. Now, modern historians have disputed the extreme length of this reign, but there is consensus that his reign was long, quite long, even if the exact number of years remains uncertain. During such long reigns, we have seen in more modern times, in better recorded eras of history, that is, we have seen that the desired succession of father to eldest surviving son often fails to occur, or is fraught with uncertainty. First of all, the sons of such long-ruling men have become older themselves, and have often expired of natural causes, or in combat, or due to assassinations. They themselves have often produced numerous heirs who still possess youth and virility and see the throne as ripe for the taking, while their grandfather daughters slowly on to his grave. Furthermore, the long-ruling king has, much like Pepi II, been through multiple wives by this point, and has had decades to change his mind about whom he favors. 
Even if the succession to the eldest son does come off successfully, such a rule will more often than not be quite short, since said heir is already an older man. And so the stability of the prior long reign is followed by a game of musical chairs in which the throne is the only place for the royal participants to sit. Such was the case with Pepe II, as far as we can tell. It is believed that one of his sons followed him on the throne, but only for a year. After that, records show that another pharaoh followed him, but his relation to Pepe II, or to anyone else for that matter, is unknown. It is possible, according to, issue, to records issued almost 2,000 years later, that a woman named Netokris followed him in power, becoming the first known woman ruler of Egypt. But already, the darkness of the intermediate period has confused the matter, and the dynastic lists of kings become less informative and more liable to distortion. Feudalism had already begun to return then, after centuries of centralized rule. Pepe II, during his reign, designated two simultaneous viziers, rather than just one. One administrated Lower Egypt, that is the portion of the realm in the north, closest to the Mediterranean Sea. This vizier worked in the royal capital at Memphis. The other vizier administrated Upper Egypt, from the old southern capital of Thebes. Throughout the intermediate period that followed the end of the Old Kingdom, competing dynasties would often rule from these different capitals. Frequently, they did not rule for long. The Seventh Dynasty was particularly disastrous. Egyptian chroniclers, probably exaggerating when describing this line of kings, claims that there was a period of 70 days in which there were 70 different rulers. The truth is that existing records of this time are damaged, unclear, confusing, and often contradictory. The Ninth and Tenth Dynasties show increasing stability, but that is a relative term. The Ninth Dynasty lasted 30 years, but surviving records suggest that there were 18 or 19 rulers in that time. That's better than 70 rulers in 70 days, certainly, but it is easy to imagine that these were chaotic times for the people of Egypt. The pharaohs of these two dynasties ruled from the city of Heracleopolis in Lower Egypt. They drove out enemies from the east, probably Canaanites or Mesopotamians of some sort and they resumed control over a greater portion of the delta. They also warred with the monarchs ruling in Thebes. This anarchic time lasted approximately 140 years in total. Each historian has his own take on the intermediate period, on its beginning and ending, on its duration. For our purposes, we can say that the Old Kingdom came to a definitive end sometime around 2180 BC, and the intermediate period lasted until at least 2040 BC, when a strong pharaoh emerged and reunited the divided kingdom. We do not need to dig too deep here. The names of the weak pharaohs that ruled in the chaos of this period are inconsequential to our Western traditions. Let the aspiring Egyptologist read up on them for us. It suffices to say that there was a long period of anarchy, of division and strife. Barbarians on the frontiers made inroads against the weakened empire, trade broke down, and artistic and architectural achievement waned. The 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th dynasties are counted here in a jumbled, overlapping timeline. And then, emerging from the night of the intermediate period, there was the Middle Kingdom, a new day for Egypt. Around 2055 BC, a man ascended to the throne of Upper Egypt in Thebes and took the name Mentuhotep II. Remember that this was the southern portion of the kingdom. He was a king of the 11th dynasty. 
Meanwhile, the 10th dynasty held power in Lower Egypt, in the city of Memphis in the north. Sometime around 2040 BC, he conquered the northern realm and reunited Egypt. Mentuhotep II is considered to be the first king of the Middle Kingdom, a nearly 400-year period of renewed vigor in a land that had once seemed to be on the edge of terminal anarchy. In these four centuries of unity and strength, there would be only three dynasties, the 11th, which had its beginning in the divided kingdom of Upper Egypt, and the 12th and the 13th dynasties. Again, an impressive measure of stability, just three dynasties in 400 years. The Middle Kingdom demonstrated a renewal of Egyptian grandeur as well as stability. Pyramid building resumed in the fashion of the pyramid complexes that had characterized the 5th and 6th dynasties of the Old Kingdom, as if to bridge the gap of a century and a half and show that Egypt was still Egypt, and statuary of all kinds were produced in great number. Interestingly, one of the common themes of these sculptures was carvings of paired sphinxes, just as appear among the Hittites not much later. As for the pyramids, they never reached the magnitude of the Great Pyramid, and there was a significant change in the way that they were constructed. Instead of stone bricks, the Egyptians began using mud bricks to build the pyramids, as well as making some other stylistic changes to their exteriors. Literature flourished as well. It was during the Middle Kingdom that we first see literature emerge for the first time in world history. There is the tale of the shipwrecked sailor, a dramatic and fantastic adventure story in which the stranded narrator meets a divine serpent on an island and learns its strange history before returning to civilization. In this period also is written the story of Sinuhe, an action-adventure tale which bears striking similarities to several biblical tales. It is almost, in many ways, like a photo-negative of the story of Joseph, who goes unwillingly to Egypt and becomes, by a strange twist of fate, a member of the royal household. In Sinuhe's story, the, travel, the hero travels in the opposite direction, unexpectedly, to Canaan and becomes a member of the local royalty there. Now, the pharaohs of the Middle Kingdom also resumed something of the extravagant power of their forebears in the Old Kingdom. It took a while, though. Initially, the feudal nature of the kingdom went unchanged after unification under Mentuhotep II. There was only one pharaoh, yes, just one dynasty of kings, but the nomarchs, the rulers of the various city-states, still possessed divisive power. It took a strong pharaoh of the 12th dynasty, Senesret III, to change all that. We do not know if Senesret actually led troops in battle, but he was militarily bold anyway, conducting multiple campaigns into Nubia in the south and into Canaan, defending and expanding the borders of the realm. He was also ambitious and creative, building canals and, most importantly, dividing the kingdom into three districts. He appointed administrators over these districts, and this was the beginning of the end for feudal power in Egypt, as these administrators, serving the pharaoh directly, acquired power over the nomarchs of their respective districts. Senesret also reigned for a long time, anywhere from 20 to 40 years, depending on which set of records that you consult. His endurance allowed the new administrative districts to confirm their power over the nomarchs and become a long-lasting feature of Egyptian government. Now, all Egyptian pharaohs were regarded, at least formally, as gods or godlike, but Senesret, due to the great renovation and rejuvenation that he brought about for the Egyptian kingdom, was one of the few who was actually deified and worshipped by the common people after his death. Senesret's son, Amen Emhat III, succeeded his father in the kingship. The ancient Egyptians do not remember him as fondly as they do his father, in that they do not deify him after death, but he was also a good king, in that he preserved the enlarged empire that his father left to him, and managed to expand mining operations in the Sinai Peninsula during his reign. 
He also built an expansive and intricate network of canals and turned a lake in Lower Egypt into a reservoir that could hold excess water from the Nile floods and then disperse that water during the dry period, allowing Egypt greater flexibility with regard to its growing seasons, which would now no longer depend entirely on the Nile floods. While there was a return to glory and ambitious projects, the pharaohs of the Middle Kingdom do not seem to enjoy all the adoration of those of the Old Kingdom. Perhaps the memory of the intermediate period created doubt in the minds of the masses with regard to the untouchable nature of the pharaohs. Amun Emhat I, a pharaoh who reigned in the 20th century BC, was assassinated in his bed. As if to emphasize this fading eminence, historians have noted that the statuary of the pharaohs, their representations in stone, all of them seem to depict men of grave emotion, their faces showing the weight of their office and their concerns, as if the pharaohs of this time could already see, though it lay more than a thousand years in the future, the way that their once great empire would eventually stumble, fall to its knees, and crawl to an ignominious end, submitting to foreign invaders from Persia, Greece, and Rome. I have spoken before about the way that religions change as time passes. The pantheons change. Once the Mesopotamians worshipped Anu and Ki, sky and earth. Later, gods such as Enlil and Inanna, storms and fertility, became the focus of more organized worship. And as we saw recently in the Babylonian episode, Marduk became a more central god in the Mesopotamian pantheon and ultimately became a sort of top deity whom all the other gods more or less obeyed. And the Greeks, as we shall see in the next series of podcasts, went through a similar evolution in their pantheon of gods. But more than the identities of the gods, the emphases of religion change over time as well. Initially, the great concern was always for fertility, first of the earth itself in giving forth fruit and game to hunter-gatherers. Then, especially in agricultural societies, the fertility of women gains importance because more children means more laborers in the fields and in projects such as canal building. Then, war gods acquire importance so that tribes and villages can focus their violence against the surrounding enemies who have resources that they need to acquire to survive and prosper. Later, in large cities, gods of order take their place at the top of the pantheon, as we saw when Hammurabi issued his famous code, and so obedience to the state, whose rulers are often also priests, becomes a focus of religious conviction. In the Egyptian religion, as Egyptian civilization transitions into the Old Kingdom and then into the Middle Kingdom, we discover another new development in religion that we will also see repeated elsewhere. As the second millennium BC passes, Osiris, the god of the underworld, takes a central position, especially in popular religion. The myth of Osiris is certainly older than the Middle Kingdom. Like all myths, like all religious beliefs, the story of Osiris is not simply cut out of whole cloth, but rather emanates out of the spiritual past, not just of Egyptians, but of all mankind. For Osiris is the dying god who rises again and brings hope to all those who pass through this veil of tears that we call earthly life. I briefly covered the Osiris myth in an earlier episode. On its face, the story is simple. Osiris was a king of Egypt, according to belief. His brother Seth grew jealous of Osiris's power and killed him in gruesome fashion, cutting his brother into pieces. Then Seth usurped his throne. 
Left behind was the grieving wife of Osiris, Isis. She was the goddess of motherhood and fertility. Aided by Seth's sympathetic wife, Isis recovered the pieces of Osiris's dismembered body, which Seth had strewn all across Egypt. The two women put Osiris back together, and he came back to life long enough to impregnate Isis before he descended to the underworld and became its overlord. Isis later gave birth to Horus, who took the throne back from Seth and regained the kingship. But the great and lasting focus of this myth, for Egyptians and for all Mediterranean religions after this time, the great focus is on the resurrection of Osiris. In this event, there is a promise which intrigued all men and women from all walks of life. And this promise continues to intrigue us today, the promise of eternal life. Anyone alive today can see how this preoccupation with death and the hope of a remedy for mortality predominates the theology of nearly all world religions. It does not appear to have always been so that religious sentiment focused so much on hope for the afterlife. And while the Osiris myth may date back as far as the 24th century BC, such preoccupation with eternal life does not immediately come to dominate religious ideas either. Bible readers might recall the gospel dialogues between Jesus and the Sadducees. The members of this Jewish sect were mostly members of the priestly class who devoted attention to concrete religious rites and not to ethereal belief in the afterlife. And this is 2,000 years after the origin of the Osiris myth. So it took a long time for the promise of eternal life to become predominant in world religions. Nevertheless, we see it beginning here already in Egypt, in the second millennium BC, this idea, this animating hope for the common man, that there might be some kind of reward for enduring life's struggles and miseries. This becomes an increasingly popular theme in mythologies around the Mediterranean basin as the centuries pass. The desire for immortality does not begin here in Egypt, nor does it begin during the Middle Kingdom. We noted the presence of this desire already in Sumer over a thousand years before, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the king who literally travels to hell and back to retrieve the secret of immortality, only to lose it cruelly just before his return home and, like the rest of us, to die with the merest figment of hope that our last breath might not really be the end. How far back does it go, this dream, this wish, this hope that physical death might not be the end? Is it a product of man's discomfort with urban life, with submission to law, the pipe dream of a discontented life of anonymity and an eventual meaningless death amid strangers? Or did even our Paleolithic ancestors, musing over the body of one struck down during the hunt or simply expired at the end of a life in the wilderness, did even they dream that there might be more than this, more than a brief journey running over the face of the earth? We do not know, and we will never know, Perhaps the Paleolithic life was so satisfying that no one harbored a desire for anything beyond the brief pleasures of this world, the hunt, fresh food, a warm fire, physical love, the joy of training children to follow your path through the woods. Or, perhaps the imagination of man has always sought answers to these questions, always wandered in search of an answer to the question left by every corpse. Maybe we only hear of it from civilized man because he developed writing and left a record of his preoccupation with life and death. So, Osiris is cruelly and unjustly murdered. He rises again to life and then leads the way into the next world, leaving behind a promise of eternal life for all who believe and act with justice. Then, this mystical hope diffuses among the religions of the Mediterranean, capturing the hearts and minds even of the Stoic Romans. By the time of Christ, Many Romans, having virtually forgotten their own gods, 
are petitioning Isis herself for mercy, for forgiveness, hoping to see her in the afterlife. With good reason, then, 2,000 years after the Egyptians began to simultaneously mourn the death of Osiris and celebrate his resurrection through the saving actions of his merciful mother Isis, Jesus and his mother Mary, though their worship was legally prohibited in certain times and places, will find a welcome place among the pantheons of the Roman Empire. The last pharaoh of the 12th dynasty was a woman named Sobek Neferu. Most likely, she was a daughter of the previous pharaoh, Amenemhat III. She was also the first female ruler of Egypt to actually adopt the royal title rather than just rule as a de facto king. Sobek Neferu was also the first ruler to use the name Sobek, which is the name of the Egyptian crocodile god. Several successive rulers in the 13th dynasty, all male, would use this name as well such as Sobekhotep. Now, Sobek Neferu's father had apparently become interested in the Sobek cult, or religion. Now, worship of a, of a crocodile god, and naming your daughter after said god, might seem odd from a Western perspective. However, you have to remember the significance of the crocodile to people living on the shores of the Nile River in the Bronze Age. These fearsome reptiles, now no longer found so far north, had the respect of the Egyptians, even today, in their modern habitats in sub-Saharan Africa, this same species of crocodile is responsible for hundreds of deaths every year. Many biblical scholars think that, at least to some, the, the reference, some of the references to leviathans in the scripture are references to crocodiles, who would have loomed large in the memory of Israelites escaping hundreds of years of servitude in Egypt. Still, in the modern age, when especially in the West, in which what religious sentiment remains People mostly stress the concept of forgiveness, kindness, and mercy. Worship of a bloodthirsty river reptile might seem difficult to grasp. However, at this point in Egyptian history, Sobek had acquired spiritual importance outside his mere representation as a crocodile. Sobek, according to popular belief, had consumed a part of the body of Osiris, which he encountered floating in the Nile, and later had assisted Isis in the search for the body parts of Osiris. Through this belief, Sobek was intimately associated with the holy family of Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Sobek was known not just as a predator, but also as a protector and even a healer. Indeed, in areas in which he was worshipped, he was essentially supreme, someone to whom all the other gods had to pay attention, at the very least. This sort of polytheism, in which many gods were recognized but one was preferred, has already been noted in Babylon and will continue as a phenomenon right through to the Christian era. Now, getting back to the Egyptian succession to the throne, after Sobek Neferu, the 12th dynasty comes to an end. It is also possible to say that here, around 1800 BC, the Middle Kingdom comes to an end. Certainly, the following 150 years resemble the first intermediate period, that time when the Old Kingdom recognizably came to an end and was followed by a period of anarchy and division. For our purposes, we will consider the next dynasty, the 13th, to indeed be a part of the Middle Kingdom. Again, things become very confused here and drawing lines is difficult. Some of the rulers of the 14th dynasty will be contemporaries of the pharaohs of the 13th dynasty, ruling from different locations in Egypt and, as once again, power becomes decentralized. 
The details of this disintegration are unimportant to our Western traditions. The only important thing to note is the cyclic nature of human history, already present here in the second millennium BC. Already old, already ancient, Egypt has now been multiple times through the rise and fall of civilization, the oscillation between order and disorder, between centralized power and feudalism. For the Egyptians of the second millennium BC, this is not a concept known from textbooks or learned about when studying the histories of other nations. This is something lived, something integral to their experience of history, of their politics and their social lives. History is not a straight line of progress for them, but a circle of repetition. The decline into anarchy is not something to be avoided, only delayed, as inevitable as death. The body politic, doomed to decompose just like any fleshly body, and to be resurrected, like Osiris, after its parts have been reunited one more time. The Middle Kingdom, like the Old Kingdom before it, came to an end. We can skip over the insignificant names and dates and places that crowd the confused history of the end of this era. Let us turn now instead to the second intermediate period, period that followed the Middle Kingdom's demise, the century between 1650 BC and 1550 BC, when Egypt experienced the crucible of foreign invasion and occupation and gained a new opportunity to rediscover itself. We can number the dynasties of the second intermediate period from the 14th to the 17th, However, none of these really rule over all of Egypt, but rather only over portions. In addition, these kings are hardly traditional kings of Egypt, with the 15th dynasty being made up entirely of foreign invaders. These foreign invaders are remembered today as the Hyksos. Their origin and their duration in Egypt are both matters of mystery. It is believed that they were from the land of Canaan, or at least from somewhere in the Levant. Some ancient historians, such as Josephus, associate them at least indirectly with the Jews. Others affirm that they were definitely Semites anyway, from the area of Canaan. Certainly the events of the Bible, specifically the books of Genesis and Exodus, make for interesting interpretations of these murky historical events. It is not hard to date the arrival of the family of Jacob in Egypt sometime during the early Middle Kingdom, or even simultaneously with the arrival of the Hyksos and to time the escape of the Israelites under Moses, either with the departure of the Hyksos or somewhat later. In other words, some historians read these biblical events as later reinterpretations of actual history by Jewish writers. However, there is no getting to the bottom of this mystery. It can just as easily be said that the arrival of Jacob and family, as described in Scripture, must have happened much earlier than the Exodus, and that it might have happened under a much later pharaoh, such as Ramses II, for our purposes, let us stick with what we know. Already during the Middle Kingdom, Egyptian records indicate that the king Senusret II received a diplomatic visit from Canaanites who brought him gifts. Among the men labeled on the painting in the tomb of Senusret is someone called Abisha the Hyksos. This recording of the term is the first known to history and comes from an era 200 years before the Hyksos arrived in force in Lower Egypt and established the 15th dynasty. Of course, the, Egypts had been, the Egyptians had been in contact with Canaan since the very beginning of its existence, as the two regions are contiguous. Even from the early dynastic period, a thousand years before, there is a plaque showing a pharaoh in battle with soldiers who were probably Canaanites, or at least from Mesopotamia or the Levant. 
Later records indicate that the Egyptians were victorious militarily over the Canaanites during the reign of Senesret III, the warlike pharaoh about whom we have already heard. And we should avoid the common inclination to think of the ancient world as a static place, a world of isolated realms out of touch with the rest of the world. We have already seen how the immigration of the Amorites into Mesopotamia impacted Babylonian history, and the arrival of the Hittites in Anatolia affected political stability to the south in the land between the rivers. Just so with Egypt, people in the ancient world were constantly immigrating to the Nile Delta in search of better living conditions, and among these there was almost always certainly a Canaanite element. Nevertheless, something unique in Egyptian history happened in the 17th century BC. Before, during times of internal weakness, foreign tribes had made inroads against the Egyptians, but never had they overthrown even one of the divided kingdoms. But now the Hyksos, whoever they were and wherever they were from, the Hyksos entered the land in great numbers and, by 1650 BC, had established their capital at Avaris in Lower Egypt. Now, I have stated before the tendency to view all such large-scale movements of people as invasions, as warlike actions. Modern interpretations of historical data show that while wars and invasions were certainly real events in the past, as they are in the present, many events previously interpreted as invasions are, on further consideration, more likely to have been simple immigration. The Egyptians needed laborers and outsiders desired to achieve the high standard of living in Egypt. So the arrival of the Hyksos becomes less easy to interpret, as it looks like their countrymen had already been having some kind of influence in Egypt, at least cultural, but more likely personal in the form of immigration and intermarriage. The Hyksos, given that we already see Canaanite names among the pharaohs, even before the Hyksos' so-called invasion, these Hyksos probably came into the land slowly, over the generations, seeking a better life. Eventually, they were there in sufficient numbers that their own nobility ascended to the throne, taking advantage of the weakness of the native population during the political division of the Second Intermediate Period. An estimate of Hyksos' rule in Egypt determines that the beginning of their hegemony, anyway, was around 1650 BC, and their defeat around 100 years later. Estimates do vary, however, with some giving the Hyksos a longer period in power. They never ruled over all of Egypt, though. Significant portions of Upper Egypt remained in Egyptian hands throughout the Second Intermediate Period and ruled from the ancient southern capital of Thebes. And the Hyksos and the rulers of the 16th and 17th dynasties out of Thebes managed to work out a living arrangement in which traders from the south could reach the Mediterranean and traders from Lower Egypt could travel up the Nile to Nubia, engaging in commerce in peace. In peace, that is, until there was war. One of the last pharaohs of the 17th dynasty declared war on the Hyksos in the north and marched against them from Thebes. One of his sons defeated them soundly and ran them out of their capital in the north. Another son, Amos I, united all of Egypt once again and became the first pharaoh of the new kingdom. Once again, Egypt stands poised to reclaim its place in the ancient world. Rightly should the rest of the world tremble in expectation of what should come next. The new kingdom will be, in many ways, the zenith of Egyptian civilization and influence in the world. Those of you who remember, who remember a little bit about ancient Egypt from high school textbooks might be wondering, where are all the famous names? Ramses the Great, Thutmose III, Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, Nefertiti, and so on. They are still to come. Such is the cornucopia of glory that is the Egyptian story. 
that so much could it have produced so far and yet still have more to give. In the meantime, though, there are other stories to tell. All this time, while the Babylonians and the Assyrians fought for control of Mesopotamia, and the Hittites achieved dominance over Anatolia, and the Egyptian ebb and flood generated drama and tragedy in the first half of the second millennium BC, all this time, on an island in the Mediterranean, to the north and west of Egypt, another people, completely new to the stage on which we have watched civilization unfold, another people is leaving its mark in the annals of human history. I speak now of the island of Crete and the Minoan civilization, which will simultaneously remind us of the ancient cultures in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, but will also point us toward cultures in Europe, such as ancient Greece, that we will begin to study in the following podcast series. They were a unique people, the Minoans, neither Semitic, Egyptian, nor Indo-European, yet they received from all and gave back much in the way of culture and trade. It is likely from them that the ancient Mycenaeans will acquire a taste for refined civilization and pass that on to the ancient Greeks, who have left an unforgettable patrimony for us, their cultural descendants in the West. All that, though, is for the next podcast. This completes the 20th episode of the Western Traditions podcast, an episode which I never expected to record when I first thought of telling the story of the ancient Greeks over a year ago and became entangled in these ancient world roots beneath the tree of Western civilization. We are fast approaching the end of this unit, however. I plan on doing five or six more episodes before concluding this first series and moving on to the Greeks. There is still a little more to say about Egypt and about Mesopotamia, and I have yet to bring up the Israelites or the Persians, who will have much more recognizable impacts on our Western traditions. And there is a specter looming in the future for the people of the Mediterranean in the second millennium BC. The Bronze Age is about to come to an end. And the transition to the Iron Age is not a journey of progress, as some might think, but actually a dark age in which trade breaks down, empires totter and fall, and civilizations forget what they have learned and must undergo a painful, costly re-education. Now, before I conclude this episode, I want to encourage you all to visit the website at westerntraditions.org. That is westerntraditions.org. There you can find all the episodes as well as maps, source lists, and books to read if you want to deepen your knowledge of any particular culture or time period mentioned in this podcast. And as always, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.